Radio Mano Papachango. Sometimes this podcast gives me access to people that um, I frankly can't believe I get to hang out with. Sometimes they're famous people. Sometimes they are um, just really private people who decide to make themselves available um, because they like the vibe that we've created, you and I, together in this podcast space that we share and uh you know with many of you that I've been sharing for what eight years or something now it's amazing um but today I got a chance to talk with a guy named Stephen Donziger who is a lawyer uh who represented uh, like 30,000 people, I think it was, in uh, Ecuador, 30,000 farmers and indigenous people in Ecuador. He represented them in uh, a case against Chevron, uh, Texaco, uh, which was later bought by Chevron. And basically, I first came across this story, oh man, maybe 20 years ago or something. I read a book called Savages by Joe Kane. Uh, which was a really interesting book. Uh, Joe Kane was working for an environmental organization, and through a strange series of coincidences, he flew to Ecuador and just walked back into the jungle, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, and found this tribe of native people and ended up living with them for a while. And um, it's a part of Ecuador that borders with Colombia. And it is the richest ecosystem in the world it, in, in terms of how many species of plants and animals, you know, in a given square acre or whatever. I guess all acres are square. Uh, it's an incredibly rich place, incredibly diverse. And unfortunately, engineers, petroleum engineers, found oil under the ground there and back in the 60s decided to drill for it. And uh, they found a way to make it economically feasible to drill for oil way back in this jungle and then you know, through a series of pipelines and trains and whatever, they got it to the coast and, you know, were able to ship it up to refineries and make some money on it. And so that's what they did. But uh, part of the deal, part of the way to make money on that was to spend as little as possible caring for that environment and dealing with the waste that they created. So they just made big Olympic swimming pool sized holes in the ground where they dumped their runoff oil or the waste that was produced 
that they weren't able to capture. And that, of course, leaked into the aquifers. When the rainy season came, it leaked into rivers and streams and fucking destroyed paradise. That's what we're good at as a species. It seems to be what we're best at is finding incredibly beautiful places and ignoring that beauty and shitting all over it. For a few bucks, that's what we do. That's what our geniuses do. They go to school, they study physics and mathematics and work out all these calculations so that they can create these incredible technologies that can reach into the earth itself, drill through rock, through mud, through aquifers, get down there, find that oil, pull it up, and then spill it all over the place. But they made a few bucks. So what happened in addition to in calculable damage to the ecosystem, to the trees, to the plants, to the fish, to the birds, to everything that lived there. There was a huge impact on the human populations there. People who swam and washed and drank from those rivers. Cancers, all kinds of different cancers spread among those people. Of course it did. They're part of the ecosystem. We are all part of the ecosystem. But as we've seen again and again and again and again and again, the profit goes to the company. The expenses, we all pay. Poor people generally pay because the refineries are built in poor neighborhoods. Right? You don't see oil refineries in Beverly Hills, and you never will. You don't see oil rigs in Malibu, and you never will. But down by the airport where the poor people live, that's where you see the oil rigs. That's where the jet fuel gets dumped. It's as old as colonialism. It's as old as civilization. But occasionally someone, for some reason, turns around and says, fuck this. This is bullshit. Today's guest is a guy named Stephen Donziger. As I said, he is a Harvard-trained lawyer, a dude who could be pulling down probably $5 million a year working for the oil companies, working for the companies that do this to human beings, to animals, to ecosystems. Instead, he's under house arrest where he's been for 600 days for a misdemeanor contempt of court citation because he refused to turn over his laptop and his phone to a legal firm hired by Chevron to fuck him over. Well, to fuck over Ecuador, to fuck over the people of Ecuador. This Harvard-trained lawyer dared to say, you know what? I am going to help 
these people fight against the dragon. And he and a bunch of other lawyers who work pro bono, which means free, busted their asses and over an eight-year campaign in Ecuador, legal campaign, finally, amazingly, won. They won a judgment against Chevron for billions of dollars. I think it was $9 billion or something for the damage that had been done to the environment and to people, to the dead children, the dead native people, and the sick native people. And what did Chevron do? Did they pay up? Did they build some clinics, pay for some doctors to go there and try to address a little bit of the damage that they'd done? Did they pay for some water filtration systems so that people would have clean water to drink? No, of course not. Of course not. They removed their assets from Ecuador and said, fuck y'all. We got what we came for, and now you clean up the mess. And so Stephen and the other lawyers on the case refiled the case in the United States to force Chevron to pay. Chevron being an American company, that's where you would have to do the sorts of uh, this determination. Uh, but what happened then was not that Chevron litigated the merits of the case. Chevron went after Stephen. They're going to make him an example. This is what happens to you if you try to stand up to the dragon. You get burned. So Stephen is under house arrest. He can't pay his bills. He has been defamed publicly. Uh, they're trying to destroy his reputation. He's been disbarred. They're trying to destroy his ability to make a living. Um, they're doing whatever they can to destroy this guy. And so a lot of people are doing whatever they can to help him. Because we're on the side of humanity. This is company versus humanity. That's really what it comes down to. These companies knew about global warming 30, 40, 50 years ago. Their own scientists said, this is going to happen. And they said, yeah, but uh, keep it quiet because we're making it. We're making money. That's inhuman. I don't mean that hyperbolically. I mean, that is against the interests of human beings. It's anti-life. When money is being created at the expense of life, what the fuck is happening? Now, I know people work for these companies, but I can't believe that these people could do what they're doing, understanding what it is. I think they don't get it. They don't understand because there is a reality field created in which it's impossible to see what you're doing. Anyway, that's enough for me. This conversation with Stephen just happened this morning, just an hour ago. 
and I want to get this episode up as soon as possible. So this is a, an abbreviated special episode fresh from the oven. Um, you know, no time to sit back and think about it and rant and rave about anything other than the subject matter. Stephen Donziger, his website is donzigerdefense.com. If you can afford it, um, please go there and uh, help support what he's doing. And uh, I will shut up now and uh, go right to the conversation with Stephen. No music, no nothing, just a 45-minute conversation with one of the coolest guys I've ever had the chance to talk to. Hope you enjoy it. All right, I'm here with Stephen Donziger. Thank you for making the time to do this, man. I know it's a very hectic period in your life at the moment. Um, yeah, well, thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, I, I will have recorded an intro, uh, you know, separately, so we don't need to, everyone knows who you are and what's going on, more or less. Uh, I, I'm really interested, you know what, when I uh, think about uh, situations like what's happening in Ecuador or uh, the Niger Delta, you know, or, um, you know, people who are facing legal jeopardy uh, and they're alone. They don't know how. They don't have resources. They don't know uh, how the legal system works. And then someone like you comes along, some guy who went to Harvard, who could be making, uh, you know, seven-figure salary defending oil companies, who not only gives up, sacrifices that kind of income, that, that kind of, you know, cushy life, but also puts himself on the line the way you have what the hell motivates you where does that come from well wow um that's a pretty good opening question i give you credit <laughs> we'll talk about this for 40 minutes all right <laughs> i think about that much i'm sort of like living day to day trying to help people in ecuador and get out of my own situation but you know i've worked on this for 25 plus years, but I've worked on a lot of other cases. I'm a professional lawyer. You know, I'm not just a crusader for this environmental justice case, even though I work hard on this case. And I'm super proud of the work I and other lawyers on this case have done for the indigenous peoples of Ecuador. I mean, we've won a massive, significant, historic judgment against Chevron. Um, when you choose a line of work in any career, you know, you often never know how it's going to play out, right? Um, when I got into this case in the early 90s, of course, I, I thought it was a simple pollution case. The facts were evident. Chevron even admitted that, that its predecessor company, Texaco, would dump billions of gallons of toxic waste in Ecuador. Um, you know, there, it wasn't very complicated. And what's happened over 25 years is Chevron has invested literally billions of dollars used at least 60 law firms, 2,000 lawyers, to try to make it more complicated than it is and to confuse people about the fundamental fact, which is that they went into Ecuador, where five indigenous groups lived, and played God and made a decision 
that rather than do it correctly, they were just going to dump the waste into the waterways that the indigenous peoples relied on for their drinking water, their bathing, and their fishing. And they produced a cancer epidemic that literally has killed thousands of people over the last 50 years. And they haven't paid one dollar in compensation, although they did plant some trees in Ecuador's capital of Quito as a, like a social service kind of gesture. So when you're a lawyer and you choose to take on something like this, um, well, I just take my duties really seriously. You know, my clients need representation. Chevron's victims need help. Um, I've spent a lot of my time organizing other lawyers to come into the case. There's been, you know, dozens of lawyers who've come in, in and out of this case over the years. It's not my case. You know, it's, it's, it's the people of Ecuador's case. They want it. It's their judgment. Um, but I worked hard on it, and, and I take my obligations seriously. And, you know, money was never something that, that motivated me to go into the legal profession. You know, what motivated me to go into the legal profession was to use whatever talents I could develop to help people who otherwise would not get access to the talents that someone like me has coming out of Harvard. Right. And I'm so proud. I mean, one of the things I'm really proud of is that we've organized millions and millions of dollars of legal services for the people of Ecuador from U.S. lawyers and lawyers in Canada and other countries that they never would have had access to and that they haven't had to pay for because other lawyers also care and they're willing to work pro bono on cases like this when there's a compelling enough need. So I'm really proud of that part of our legal profession that cares. And there's a lot of lawyers, myself among them, that really care and I think have done outstanding work on this case to produce this historic court victory. You know, the issue of where I'm at is so bizarre and crazy, and we'll get into that. It's not really indicative of what normally happens in these types of cases, and you know. But I'm just really proud of what our legal team has accomplished. I'm super proud of the leadership, the community leadership in Ecuador. You know, without that, this never would have happened. Um, so many individuals, so courageous, so sophisticated. You know, it's just been a, it's been an amazing experience. Why is Chevron going after you? personally, when so many lawyers have been involved in this case, as you say? Because I've been instrumental every step of the way in pushing it forward more than any other lawyer. And there's a lot of lawyers who've done great work, but I'm, they've, I think they've accurately perceived me to be the driving force. I've raised 99% of the funds from donors and investors. I've organized the legal teams. You know, I'm, I'm I speak a lot to the media. Um, I try to amplify the voices of the people in Ecuador who are hurting so they can get access to people like you, you know, up here. Um, and I think, they, I think they're attacking me really for two reasons. One is I think they have incorrectly calculated in their own heads that if they can lock me up and get rid of me, the case will go away. It will not. There's too many other lawyers working on it. And two is I just think they're flat out bothered by the fact I call them out. You know, they're trying to get me to not do interviews like this, and they're trying to shut me up. And, you know, this isn't about me. I mean, they're personalizing it about me. It really is about um, their effort to use me as some sort of symbol to intimidate all the other lawyers and environmental activists and journalists into just ignoring this environmental atrocity that they've created that is killing people. Yeah. As we speak. 
They don't want people to know about this. And, you know, I, I, I'll take almost any interview request I get. I just did an interview the other day with the Columbia Student Newspaper. You know, I'm telling the truth about what they did. And they want me to be quiet, and therefore they attack me, hoping I'll just stop and give up. And it's even, it goes even beyond the damage to the human populations in that area. It's one of the most diverse ecosystems in the world, is my understanding. And uh, they're destroying entire uh, ecosystems, not, not just the humans, the, the birds, the fish, the amphibians, the trees, the whole thing. Um, it's not like it's out in the middle of the desert somewhere where, you know, who gives a shit? This is one of the richest environments on the planet that they're despoiling. Um, Very true. And that's, yeah. that's an important point. It's not just the people. People live in an ecosystem. Um, you know, this isn't this is the most biodiverse, biodiverse area on the planet. I mean, you can have one hectare and have a thousand different species of plants, animals, birds and trees. Literally. Yeah. And crazy. Going to this area in particular, you know, as opposed to say the Gulf of Mexico or Death Valley in California, to go into this this ecosystem and yeah. drill in this way, where they deliberately dump their waste. I mean, Chris, I can't emphasize this enough. This was not an accident. This was part of an engineering design by Chevron to dump billions of gallons of toxic waste into indigenous ancestral lands. It produced a mass industrial poisoning systematically and deliberately so they could save money on their production costs. And the people who live there have paid, many have paid the ultimate price and everyone has paid some price. So they basically, you know, privatize the profits. They take the oil out, dump the waste, sell the oil, make money, leave the most vulnerable communities on the planet with the bill to clean up their mess, it's disgusting. And I want to just mention this fact in particular. You know, when, when Texaco went in there in the 60s and 70s and started polluting, and the indigenous leaders were like, what's up? You know, well, what's this black stuff in our waterways? And, like, and, and the Texaco engineers were told to say, oh, no, it's, it's, the oil is like milk. It has vitamins. That's what they were told. I mean, the level of abuse. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just the charts, and I've never seen anything like it. And, and, you know, that's why, getting back to your first question, why I've stayed in this this long, I just can't turn my back on it. Yeah. When uh, when you won the judgment in Ecuador, did you? that must have been a, a, a fantastic moment for you and your the other people that you were working with. Did you expect it to end there? Did you think they would pay up and clean up and get out? Yeah, I did. I had faith that they would comply with the rule of law and at least settle the case at that point. I mean, at that point, the, the year we won, which was 2011, we had been litigating already 18 years. Yeah. Um, I did not anticipate their being able to manipulate the U.S. judicial system to avoid paying. I mean, I will say this. They've spent two, three billion dollars to attack me and to put off the day of reckoning to the people of Ecuador. If they had spent that money to clean up, they could have done that many years ago 
thousands of lives would have been saved. They wouldn't have had to deal with me and all the reputational damage they've had to suffer. I mean, there's a there's a, literally a shareholder revolt within Chevron against management over their mishandling of this case. And the world would have been a much happier, safer place. You know, why couldn't they do that? You know, and what I've learned that I didn't really know before is the fossil fuel industry generally, Chevron in particular, is vicious. I mean, they will stop at nothing to protect their polluting business model that is, in my view, destroying our planet to, to kind of rest out every last dollar of profit they can in an industry that's in major structural decline because of global warming. And I think the idea that like this lawyer, and I work out of my apartment in Manhattan, I've been to Ecuador 200 plus times, I, I travel a lot, but you know, I work here just because I'm near my son and I, I, since I travel so much when I'm in New York, I want to be home, you know? And I work a lot and I want to be around. Um, so I work out of this, you know, humble apartment in, in Manhattan fighting 2,000 lawyers. Now, I work with other lawyers, a few other lawyers around the world, we collaborate, but I'm, I'm alone. And I'm still working at my kitchen table. I mean, even while under house arrest, I'm still working at my kitchen table. Um, and I enjoy my work, and we're, we're being really effective. I mean, this case is really strong, viable, and they're facing major risk. Believe me, they would not be locking me up with their own private corporate prosecutor if they felt no risk. Yeah, They feel enormous risk, as they should, because the people of Ecuador own a $10 billion judgment against them for what they did. And, you know, what they're fighting is not only that judgment, or they don't want to pay it, they're fighting the idea that people like the people of Ecuador who won the judgment, they're fighting the idea that they can bring cases. I mean, they don't want these cases, whether it's Nigeria, Ecuador, Peru. I mean, there's so many countries where they have environmental problems, the United States. So they're, they're, they're attacking the people of Ecuador over spending massive sums of money. I mean, they could have spent less and cleaned up. But it's because they're trying to send a message to people around the world not to bring these cases. That's what they hope to accomplish from this massive counterattack and I would say overkill retaliation campaign. Are they still extracting oil in Ecuador? No. So what? No, they left. No. Yeah. So what's I mean, there is oil being extracted in Ecuador from various companies, but not Chevron. Not Chevron. So what's to stop them from just saying, you know, we've got no assets in Ecuador. Um, I know one of the things that's unusual about your case is that, you know, the sort of general sense is that the legal systems in Latin America are are corrupt and judges are easily bought off and politicians are bought off. And so these corporations can operate with impunity because they own the entire system. Um, but the United States is different from that. The United States has a legal system that has integrity and is not uh, totally owned by these corporate interests. But in your case, in this case, everything seems to operate in the opposite way. You actually got uh, an objective judgment in Ecuador, and then when you try to uh, apply that judgment to the company in the United States, suddenly things start looking very corrupt. Were you surprised by that? Yes. Yeah. Listen, I'm a rule of law guy. You know, you go to, when you're a law student in the United States, you're taught that we have if not the world's best legal system, one of the top two or three with Canada, England. 
um, to experience the Ecuadorian legal system, which performed, in my view, admirably against every effort by Chevron's lawyers to sabotage the case. I mean, I mean that trial took eight years for a reason. They kept trying to grind it down, intimidate judges, file duplicative motions to slow down the process. Their whole strategy was to sabotage that trial so it would never end. And we fought every step of the way. By the way, not me, Ecuadorian lawyers hmm. fought every step of the way and kicked butt to win that judgment, which was based, by the way, on voluminous scientific evidence, undisputed scientific evidence, including 64,000 chemical sampling results that showed that they had massive pollution that had been left by Chevron in Ecuador. So that was a really good result. They couldn't handle that. You know, they had no argument. So they had to manufacture evidence and I think commit, yes, corrupt acts. And the way they did that is they paid an Ecuadorian witness $2 million, Alberto Guerra. They, the Chevron lawyers at the U.S. law firm of Gibson Dunn coached him for 53 straight days so he could get his story straight. And he claimed without any evidence that he had been in a meeting with me in Ecuador where I had offered or approved of a bribe to the trial judge in Ecuador. Now, why would I do that? We were winning the case. The evidence was overwhelming. It was just crazy. And they made it up. And then Judge Kaplan, who they steered the case to, who's a former tobacco lawyer, he's a federal judge in New York, and I don't believe he is a man of honesty and integrity, frankly. And I hate saying that because I want to believe all our federal judges are. But I, I, my experience with Judge Kaplan is he falls well short of the minimal standard. And he denied me a jury, let this lying witness come in and say this after being prepped for 53 days to lie. He believed him and not me. I've never had a single complaint from a client in 30 years of law practice. I'm a man of integrity. He believed him, an admitted liar from Ecuador, paid $2 million by Chevron over me. But it, it wasn't, the, the game wasn't, this wasn't a truth-seeking process. Right. It was a weaponized political process by Chevron and Judge Kaplan to destroy the model of this case, to blow it up. So no one would do it again. And also, obviously, to protect a major U.S. company at the same time. I mean, it infuriated them that the Ecuadorian courts had the audacity to impose a judgment on an American company. So take a step back. What happened? Kaplan is a trial judge. He's the lowest level federal judge. You know, there's appellate courts and then the Supreme Court above him. He purports from his Manhattan trial court, without looking at any of the evidence in the Ecuador case, he, he excluded all the environmental evidence, without a jury, without speaking Spanish, without understanding Ecuadorian law, probably without ever having traveled even to Ecuador, he purports to rule that a judgment from another country that had spent years looking at the evidence was somehow fraudulent based on a paid Chevron witness. And he tried to, by ruling this way, he tried to overrule Ecuador's Supreme Court, which had affirmed the judgment. So how does Manhattan stop? But, but I want to say this about yeah. colonial systems of thinking. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if the opposite occurred? Can you imagine if an Ecuadorian trial judge had, from his trial court, tried to overrule a decision of the United States Supreme Court, how he'd be laughed at? But Judge Kaplan 
a U.S. judge did that to Ecuador Supreme Court, and like a lot of lawyers, are like, oh, I guess the case is a fraud. I mean, they give Judge Kaplan, some lawyers do, more credibility, even though he got it completely wrong, and I think he's not on the up and up, compared to the collective credibility of 29 appellate judges in Ecuador and Canada who have affirmed the judgment. I mean, there's stories you read in the U.S. legal press, like the only thing that matters is what Judge Kaplan says. Mm. They don't even talk about what Ecuador's courts and Canada's courts say. And it's, it's a real problem. How hypothetically, um, because, you know, last thing I want to do is, is make anything, your situation, uh, you know, the legal jeopardy more intense. But hypothetically, how would Chevron apply pressure to a judge in the United States? I mean, that, how, would, well, how would that work? The way it works is there's been a multi-decade effort to remake our federal judiciary so it's pro-corporate and more right-wing. And that's done through various organizations like the Federalist Society, the Judicial Crisis Network. A lot of people know more about this than me, but there's a whole infrastructure out there in America to control the judiciary so corporate interests are served over the interests of the people. And so a lot of times you go to federal court, I mean, and you're a corporation, it's just stacked in your favor from the get-go. And you can get almost any judge on some courts and they're going to be sympathetic to you. Mm. You know, in, in this particular case, Judge Kaplan definitely comes out of that world. You know, he represented Philip Morris, Brown and Williamson when he was at the big corporate firm Paul Weiss for 24 years before he was named to the bench by President Clinton. You know, Clinton. He's one of the most... Clinton, yeah. He's one of the most pro-corporate judges imaginable. But in New York, you know, Donald Trump has now appointed 25% of the federal appellate judges just in the last four years. I mean, the yeah. court has moved decidedly to the right. So it's very difficult when you come in with an environmental case or a human rights case or a civil rights case to get a panel that comes out of that world. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And, and it's, you're always fighting uphill in U.S. courts. I mean, people need to understand particularly people who care about environmental justice, look at the courts. You know, yeah, there's the Sunrise Movement, there's all sorts of things happening at the citizen level, and then all these problems get stalled in courts. You know, for example, all these lawsuits against the fossil fuel industry from municipalities are getting blocked because our federal judiciary is blocking them. Yeah. You know, so it's it's something to look at. People often forget about the important role of the judiciary and and blocking social change, not just facilitating it, as, as has happened at some junctures in our history, but like obstructing it. And I think that's what I've experienced in this case. Do you think that the people sitting in the boardroom at Chevron, um, how do I say this? Do you, do you think that they lack insight into what they're doing? Or do you think that they are tools of something stronger than them both i mean look if you're on chevron's board you know if you're the kind of person who would put him or herself in a position to get asked to be on that board you've already made your bed with the forces in our society that are about accumulation of great personal wealth you know in this case the fossil fuel industry, which causes significant destruction to our planet. So, um, you know, 
I think to the people on Chevron's board who work in this world, I mean, everything is just normal. Like, oh, this is what we do. We, we, we sell oil. We make money. And anyone who threatens that, of course we're going to attack. I mean, we're obligated to attack them. We have fiduciary duties to our shareholders. You know, it's very easy to justify this kind of awful behavior. Yeah. Given, you know, the, the, the securities laws in the United States and, and such. But I think this case... And Chevron's behavior in this particular case, given locking up a lawyer, you know, thumbing their nose at indigenous peoples of Ecuador who won the case, I think it's it's a it's really extreme. I, I don't think you see this kind of extreme injustice, you know, facilitated by judges in other cases. I've never seen it. And so I'm I'm shocked by it. I mean I'm experiencing it, but yeah. it's just stunning. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the the Union Carbide. Uh, Bhopal disaster, you know, very similar. Because, you know, that was one of the greatest industrial accidents in world history. And the, you know, thousands of people died. And the, the average victim maybe got two, three thousand dollars in compensation because this court in New York, the same court that is locking me up. Really? has refused to let the victims of Bhopal, of, of Dow Chemical in Bhopal, Dow Chemical, an American company, come to use U.S. courts to get justice as a way to limit the liability. You know, so hmm. the Bhopal case is another really good example of, of the hostility I think some U.S. judges feel toward foreign victims of human rights violations committed by American companies abroad, which is a critical issue. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the Yes Men? Yes. Yeah, I, they came to my attention when one of them went on BBC News World and uh, pretended to be a representative of DuPont, I think, which had just bought Union Carbide and said, remember you remember that? Well, they've become yeah, they've become friends of mine. I, I'm going to call them after we finish this and see if they can put together something on your behalf. <laughs> I just want to say. I don't know if we've talked about this because we've covered a lot of ground here, but, you know, one of the most bizarre, disturbing features of my situation is I'm being prosecuted for criminal contempt, not by the government, but by a private Chevron law firm. Uh, this is a corporate prosecution. And I don't think this country's ever seen this. I mean, how is it, you know, Judge Kaplan, who's had it out for me, charged me with criminal contempt because I wouldn't turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron, and I appealed it instead. That, to me, is not a criminal act. That's normal litigation. Um, he then, but Judge Kaplan was after me. He takes these charges to the U.S. Attorney's Office. He refuses to prosecute me. I think they correctly saw this was baseless. And then Judge Kaplan says, well, I'm not going to rest there. And he appoints a private prosecutor from a Chevron law firm who's prosecuting me and being paid by taxpayers, $300 an hour. She's billed $464,000 so far that we've paid to prosecute me for a misdemeanor that never should have been brought. That's the state of play right now with me in New York. Yeah, I, I would have thought that if the Justice Department decided not to bring charges, then that was it. I, I didn't even know it was possible for a judge to hire a private firm to pursue a contempt case. Well, it's, it's very rare. It happens under extremely narrow circumstances when a judge just charges a lawyer in his or her court with misbehaving. And then they're obligated to take their charge to the U.S. attorney. And if the U.S. attorney turns it down, there's a rule where they can appoint a private lawyer. 
It happens once every five years nationwide. Hardly ever happens. Because, you know, the U.S. attorney usually takes the case. Yeah. But what's crazy is he could have appointed Kaplan, any of a thousand neutral former federal prosecutors who live in Manhattan. And he appointed the one person, her name, by the way, is Rita Glavin, who works for a Chevron law firm. What the hell is that all about? And worse, he never told us. It was never disclosed. He appointed her. She starts asking for my detention at home and got it. I've been at home almost two years now with an ankle bracelet on a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of 180 days. No professional prosecutor would have locked me up for one day because there is not any other person in America charged with a misdemeanor locked up pretrial other than Stephen Donziger, the lawyer who won the judgment against Chevron. Come on. It, it doesn't, I mean, it seems like they're, not only are they not trying to hide what they're up to, they're trying to advertise what they're up to. That's, that's something that I think about a lot. You know, Charles Blow in the Times, New York Times, had a really good column the other day about, just talking about the George Floyd case, how when that officer, Chavin, was on his neck, it was such overkill. It was almost like he was trying to advertise, I can do this and you can't stop me. Yeah. And I think there's, some, there's a similar dynamic to me. I think they are almost relishing people watching me get crushed through their naked corruption. I mean, they almost want to just they want people to know they can do this. I mean, you know, usually exposing corruption has a tendency to stop the corruption. You know, in this case, I think what's happening is the more we expose it, the angrier they get. We're challenging it. They're like, we're just going to jam him. We're just going to jam him. And that's what they're trying to do. But, you know, I need help, by the way. And, and you know, I don't know if I can segue into that, but I mean, We've built a pretty damn big movement over the last year, supporters, including 55 Nobel laureates who've demanded my release, thousands of lawyers around the world have signed a statement um, on my behalf, and, and, you know, I've got a lot of followers on Twitter. You can follow me at Donziger if you can. Um, I, I was on Twitter Live the other night for the very first time, and 25,000 people or so have listened to what I had to say about the case, which blows my mind. Yeah. People are really engaged because I think they see this for what it is, which is it's not just about me, as even though that's compelling and I need help and I want to get my life back, as does my son and wife. But, you know, it's not just about me. Like, people look at this and realize this is a corporate playbook that Chevron and Judge Kaplan are using to test it out and see if they can get away with it right and you know we can't let them get away with it i mean i've already suffered so much and i'll acknowledge there are other people in the american criminal justice system who are innocent suffering far worse than me but what's never happened that you see in this case is a corporate accountability lawyer being who won a case being locked up as a form of retaliation in the in the in a in a corporate prosecution controlled by Chevron or at least orchestrated by Chevron. I mean that is unbelievable. And if if that gets upheld, that's just not gonna be good for the nature of our society or our free speech or you know our democracy. How do you how do you maintain uh your sort of fundamental faith in the legal system in the face of what you've been dealing with. I mean, I, I look at you like a, 
you know, like an athlete who's giving, leaving everything out there on the basketball court, and then you find out, like, wait a minute, these the refs have been paid off. It doesn't matter how many points we score, we're going to lose. Like, how do you keep playing the game? Wow, that question hits me, man. I mean, I got to tell you, that's a tough question to hear because I think that's what's happened. And then you sort of feel like you were played for a fool, right? You're a lawyer. Hey, I'll bring a lawsuit. Oh, let's present evidence. Oh, we won. Oh, you're still not going to pay? Because they're going to, you know, undermine the entire process through paid witness testimony? I mean, that is what's happened here. Now, how do I maintain my faith? I think I have a very realistic view of the U.S. justice system right now. And there's good parts, there's bad parts. I recognize that what I'm dealing with is totally unfair and stacked against me. I have no choice but continue to engage, speak the truth, expose what I believe is wrongdoing in the system, and seek justice for my clients in Ecuador and my own personal freedom. And I, I just have no choice but to continue that fight because once that ends, what do we really have? I mean, yeah, you know, thousands of people now know about this and they don't like that. So the process of fighting, even if it's the odds, even if it's structurally kind of stacked against you, can often expose it in a way that ultimately you can win. And, you know, I have a very broad view of things that have happened in history. I mean, you know, how many advances in the cause of social justice in countries throughout history happen when it all looks dead and lost and suddenly it just blows up? Yeah. You know, so the the night is always darkest in the hour before the dawn. I have hope and I think we're going to get there. Is your mom alive? No. She died in uh, 2009. My mom... Her name was Honey. She she was a great lady. I was a kid, and I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and she would take me and my sister to, you know, pickets in front of the grocery stores because of the Farm Workers Union and Cesar Chavez. I mean, she cultivated in us a real sense that we had a broader duty to care about others and to care about our society. And, you know, that's sort of where my value system was born Yeah, in my home due to my mom's awesome leadership of our family you know and so unfortunately i lost my mom in 2009 she died on december 7th 2009 and literally two days later chevron started its first lawsuit against me and you know i was really happy she didn't have to live to see that shit to be honest yeah yeah that that would have hurt her she would have been strong as an ox as she always was but yeah you know, literally two days. I, I didn't even get a chance to grieve properly, and I had to deal with the shit they were throwing at me. How do you talk to your your son's fourteen? Is that right? Yeah. How do you talk to him about this? About my situation? Yeah, yeah. How, like, I mean, I, I remember being fourteen, and and you know, anything that would have put my father in any kind of danger would have would have really freaked me out. And I imagine it's well, difficult uh, to get him to see the big picture. Or maybe he does. Maybe he's a lot smarter than I was. I don't know. That's a tough one. I mean, 
I'll say this, you know, a couple of responses to that. I mean, one is he carries a lot watching his dad suffer. You know, and also our lifestyle has been diminished, you know. We're stuck in, in a, in a two-bedroom apartment, and we used to get out a lot, even if it's just to the corner for dinner or traveling. Yeah. You know, and I would often take Matthew with me, you know, for work. I'd travel to Canada or to London, and, you know, he saw a lot of the world until this happened. So I think it's a real blow to him and, and all of us. And, and, you know, what it really does, I'm talking about the indefinite house arrest that I'm under. Um, it, 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 it steals away your ability to plan for the future. You know, you never know what's going to, you can't plan. Oh, what are we going to do this summer? Can we go yeah. visit our friends in Jacksonville? Can we go visit my sister? Can we go to the beach? You can't plan. I mean, we're just here. You know, now I, I encourage my wife and son to get away without me, and they do. Um, but, you know, he's caring a lot. He's also awesome, kind. I, I think he gets he gets it. I mean, he, he sees the media. He sees interviews like this. You know, I think he's really proud of me, but he's also, it's tough. It's tough. My wife and I, um, you know, Chris, these attacks have been going on against me for 10 years. They didn't just happen two years ago. Yeah. I want to be clear about that. They've been attacking me for 10 years, and... They have websites dedicated to destroying my reputation. Websites they've created. Amazon Crude is one. Go look at it. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I mean, Google me. They buy Google ads to trash me, you know, whenever I start looking good because of some media article. So, you know, my wife was like, oh, my God, are you ever going to get your name back? And I'm like, the best we're ever going to do, and this was 10 years ago, is tell the truth keep our narrative alive there's their narrative is alive too it happens to be false in my opinion my narrative is very much alive it's true and you know people are going to see two narratives and they're going to make their own judgments and that's okay that's okay that's good for us yeah because you know we're in an arms race against chevron which is like has a hundred thousand nuclear weapons and we just have like slingshots and we are i think ascendant with our narrative and you know, it's traumatic, but we decided never to let a trauma turn into a pathology, meaning, you know, let's create happiness and normalcy in our home while we deal with this professionally, yeah. you know, for our child and for us. And, you know, even under house arrest, there's not a day that goes by that we don't experience happiness in our home. We're conscious of it. We practice it. Yeah. So you know, that kind of explains, I think, why I'm able to withstand this. Um. You know, Stephen, one of the reasons I'm really happy you found some time to do this is uh, I hope that Joe Rogan uh, sees this and everybody watching this tweet at Joe, send Joe emails, whatever, you know, create a firestorm because, you know, I have a, you know, my audience that I love, uh, you know, maybe 50,000 people, but I would love for you and Joe to to spend some time talking and reach millions of people. And, you know, I know that he, he cares about things like this and he's a, you know, he's a mensch. So, uh, that would be, that would be great. And before we go, do you mind if I mention our website? No, I, I wanted to ask you, how can people help you? Is there a, a, a defense fund that people can contribute yeah. to? Yeah. 
Go to Don's if you want to help. Go to a website. It's called DonzigerDefense.com. D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R Defense.com. All one word. And you can sign up for our campaign, meaning you'll get our emails. And sometimes we'll say, hey, take action, write this congressperson, that kind of stuff. And you can also donate to the Legal Defense Fund. It takes significant resources to deal with a monster like Chevron. Um, that money doesn't go to me. It goes to a trust fund at a law firm in Seattle. Um, and it pays legal expenses and pays some of our household expenses because I've been unable to work for two years since they locked me up. Um, so luckily, a lot of people have helped. Uh, most donations are, you know, tons of small donations, which we love. Five, ten bucks, twenty bucks. Some people give a hundred, five hundred, a thousand, whatever you can give. If you can give, please go to DonzigerDefense.com and help. But at a minimum, even if you can't give, because I know times are tough for many people, go to the website anyway and sign up. Give us your email. Sign up for the campaign. Beautiful. Hey, man, thank you so much. I, you know, the first thing I ever really cared about uh, as a kid was Native American cultures. I've when I was 11, 12 years old, I read a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee that really touched me. And then for the next five years, all I cared about was Native Americans and, and this the history, uh, which, of course, alienated me from contemporary American society because I realized like I was on the wrong side, you know, and I remember reading over and over again about how the government would sign a treaty with a tribe and then you know like the 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 treaty that gave the lakota the black hills and then someone found gold and then the treaty didn't matter anymore and the indians just got murdered and pushed and pushed and pushed and i there were no lawyers apparently in those days who could represent the indians you know there were no lawyers from Harvard who were saying, you know, fuck it. I know I could make a lot of money, but I'm going to go represent these people because they deserve it. And I see what you're doing as part of the same tradition. You know, it's the same process that's playing out. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm honored and flattered that you said that and also distressed, you know, because another parallel is, you know, broken treaties broken court promises right you know i mean can you imagine the indigenous leaders of ecuador you know they could have protested they could have frankly probably with some moral justification attacked the oil workers physically they played by the rules yeah you know they went to court as did i and they won and chevron refuses to pay and is now working with another court to undermine the ecuadorian court it's the same thing. It's broken treaties, broken promises for indigenous peoples up here in North America, Native Americans, and also in Latin America with the Ecuadorians. And I think it's apt that you brought that up. Yeah. Well, listen, man, uh, I really am honored that you found some time for this. And uh, I hope everyone will go to DonzigerDefense.com and throw some money in the can and uh, do whatever we each can individually to throw a little weight behind this. You're, you're working for all of us, not just for the Ecuadorians. 
All right, my brothers and sisters, there you have it. Stephen Donziger, donzigerdefense.com. Please go and uh, contribute whatever you can to help Stephen pay the rent while he's out there busting his ass um, trying to defend people who really need his help and uh, ultimately defend all of us against these fucking monsters. Um, that's it. If you uh, see this on Twitter, please retweet it. Please spread the word. Please, you know, tag Joe Rogan. Um, you know, uh, Joe's a, a friend and a wonderful guy, um, but he gets inundated with texts and emails and I try not to uh, add to that. So um, I think it would be more effective if he hears about it through social media, through many, many people than, uh, you know, pleading text message from me. Um, and I know, you know, Joe cares about these sorts of things. And um, if it comes to his attention, I imagine uh, he and Stephen would have a great conversation. Uh, anyone else, any journalists, you know, Anybody who's got any sort of a platform uh, who's sympathetic to the cause of humanity, uh, please spread the word. All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I am not going to play you out with my mom or Carsey Blanton or anything else because I want to leave the echo of this conversation fresh in your mind. I think it's worthwhile. Thank you for listening, everybody. I'll be back with you soon.